When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Goldmine Podcast. This is Goldmine Editor Patrick Prince. And this episode will have guitarist K.K. Downing, co-founder of Judas Priest. And it's relevant because we just put out an issue with Judas Priest on the cover, 50 Years of Judas Priest Music. And it's got not only K.K. interview, but Rob Halford. Now, K.K., Needed to be in there because he is the one that was there at the very beginning. So he tells the story about Priest in the beginning, right in the pages of Goldmine Magazine. The February-March edition at Barnes & Noble and Books A Million stores, select stores right now. Or you could go to shop.goldminemag.com and get a physical edition if you can't find it in the store. Now, you can always, always also get a collector's edition that has a rare alternate cover and a rare 8x10 of Rob Halford on his motorcycle circa 1979. Okay, well, there's not a lot to be said about K.K. Downing that hasn't already been said. I mean, he is one of the legendary metal guitarists. And uh, since he's not in Priest, he once again is back in action with his own band called KK's Priest. And they have a, a new album out, Sermons of the Sinner. And that's out now. It's in our Goldmine store at shop.goldminemag.com. And he'll be talking about just not just the 50 years, but his new band as well. So we'll be right back. After this message, with KK Downing. Hey, good to good to finally meet you and interview you, man. Yeah, you're, you too. You're the only yeah, member of Priest that I've spoken to. <laughs> yeah, so it's okay. great. So I want I wanted to go over two things for, for the magazine: um, the 50 years of Priest, which is being celebrated, and of course your band. Um, so I want to blend from kind of like an natural transition from the beginning to now um so let's go back to the beginning um tell me how you first met atkins that's al atkins right how did it all happen um i know he had judas priest going but you were the first i mean how could i not talk about 50 years without interviewing you because you were there at the beginning yeah yeah so i was just um 
like I said, I don't know how, how old I was, Patrick, I think I'm probably 17 or something. And I, and I lived on this housing estate and I, I used to see this van, this old beat up van going through the estate, you know, and it had spray painted on it, Judas Priest. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, that's so cool because this long-haired guy was driving the van, you know. And his name was Johnny Ward, and he he actually became he had actually became Deep Purple's tour manager. But anyway, um, so um, so we all lived in the town. I think it's so cool. I'd love to be in that van. I'd love to be in that band. I don't care what they play or whatever. It's so cool, Judas Priest, you know. <laughs> and and then um, what happened was because the guys were just they were just trying to put a band together called Judas Priest because the band that they were before called the Jug Blues Band. Mm. And I actually went to my old school and I saw them play the school dance and they were a blues band, you know, but they were great. And mm. Al Atkins was singing for them and Al looked really cool, you know. And, um, and um, but... What happened was they were doing fine, but their guitar player, John Perry, believe it was John. Um, Jimmy was John's brother who played the drums, but uh, he was just about 18, I think. Correct me if I've got my statistics wrong, but he, he apparently killed himself by driving the van into a telephone kiosk, you know, which was very, very sad. And, um, and of course, the guys, the rest of the guys who were, who were asleep in bed at the time, you know, and the police knocked the door, told them about it. But then they obviously disbanded and they wanted to reform a new blues band called Judas Priest. And they took the name from the album uh, Frankie Lane, uh, the song Frankie Lane and Judas Priest by Bob Dylan. You know, yeah. they took the name from that. And... Of course, the lad who died, you know, obviously they were looking to replace him. They didn't want to carry on with the, the band because obviously of what had happened. So they went, we were forming a new band called Judas Priest. Yeah. And they got the roadie, they got the van, you know, they got the bass player, they got the singer. Um, I think they got the drummer, but they were decided to audition for a guitar player. So... I found out, and I went for the audition, and I didn't really know all about the history of it. I just know I went for the audition uh, with the bass player and Al Atkins sat me down in their mom's front room, and and I took my crappy guitar and I don't know what I plugged into, but anyway, <laughs> they, they were looking for a blues guitar player, and I wasn't that because I I liked the blues, but I'd moved on from that. I was Cream, Hendrix, yeah. improvised solos, uncontrolled feedback, controlled feedback, yeah. long improvised solo. I'd moved on from the blues, you know. I didn't want to, I didn't want to get stuck in the major and minor pentatonic syndrome, you know. Okay. It's a bit rude of me to call it a syndrome because obviously it's very much revered blues playing, and so and, and all of my heroes played the blues. But you evolved. I mean, you evolved from that. And Hendrix, yeah. well, he changed but everything. They say uh, they said uh, sorry because 
you know, I didn't make the grade. And um, really, yeah, because I didn't know any blue standards. Yeah, yeah. If they play, if they asked me to play Hideaway or you know, right. or, or whatever, or Crossroads or whatever, I, I didn't know. I'd never played those songs. But obviously, they changed their minds. <laughs> yeah, in, fact, in fact, I didn't know any blue standards at all. You know, yeah. at, at that point, because I'd moved on, I was kind of the next generation, I yeah. guess. Yeah. So I carried on doing what I was doing with Ian and our drummer, John Ellis, mm. and uh, just as a three-piece, and we didn't know the singer, because singers were hard to find, you know. Sure. And so I don't know what the hell we were playing, so we were just we were playing just improvised stuff, you know, over some riffs, you know, so I would probably just start a riff, improvise, you know in E and then going to solos and and that's what we did but Ian loved it because he was a big Cream fan and I you know and a Jack Bruce fan and so was I and uh uh the drummer tagged along we did that for probably about a year and then Al Alan Atkins and Bruno Stapleton the bass player the audition for me came down to the rehearsal room and 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 Al said, are you looking for it? And, and they opened the door and just stood there and listened to us play. And Al said, are you looking for a singer? <laughs> we said, yeah, we're looking for a singer. Um, and I was pretty excited by this time because Al was the front runner of singers in the area, you know, because yeah. Al could play the drums a bit, could play guitar a bit, and uh, and he could sing, you know. And so we formed the band and we went up to the pub, which was literally a, a spit away. And we sat around there, you know, and, and, um, you took on the name, which, uh, and, and, and yeah, and I was going, God, oh, yeah, yeah. If, if Judas Priest is still available, we've got to be that because I was so excited. I was so such, a, such a great name. And he, it was, and he said, um, Okay, yeah, well, obviously we'll need, we need to get a name and I'm there thinking, buy them a time, playing it cool, playing it cool. And I'll go, well, you know, what about what about Judas Priest? Because they had formed a Judas Priest. Right. They found a guitar player called Ernie Chatterway. I never heard Ernie play, but I heard that he was good from the other side of Birmingham and he looked good, you know. But it didn't work out for them. They'd They'd been playing for about a year and it kind of fell apart for whatever reason and then so I said well what's happening with Judas Priest is that still you know can we be that and I'll say well yeah we could use that and I said uh, coolly well why don't we give that a go then you know thinking yes yes you know <laughs> Judas Priest you know we've got a singer we are Judas Priest and I, I, I felt like I won the lottery mate you know well, it's it's a great because I wanted to be a priest. It's a catchy name, and it, it kind of describes, you know, thematically the light and dark of music, right? The con yeah. the sort of yin and yang. So, so we got together. The onus was on me to start writing, obviously, which I was really happy to do. Do you mean I'd already got some ideas, obviously, you know, stuff that I'd been improvising around 
So we sat there and strut and before you knew it, you know, we were playing songs, you know, that became victim of changes and and a, a lot of stuff that's there in the archives now, you know. Yeah. So myself and Al would we would write the material and put the set list together. Yeah. And we decided what, what covers we were going to do because we didn't have a, a set of original material. So we decided what we would do. And we would do very dark, sinister, obscure stuff by a band called Quatermass. You know, so we would play Black Sheep of the Family and Saturday Post War Echo and songs like that that nobody knew. In those days, it was a good ploy because people would think that they were our songs, yeah. they were good songs. So we never really played covers, and it was taboo to play cover. I did play a couple of, I did play Spanish Castle Magic a couple of times. Oh, you know, by, by, by Hendrix, which was really cool. But mainly, you know, we just did our own original material, and and people didn't know when they booked us into gigs, venues, venues, pubs, clubs, they didn't know what material we would to call, you know, they didn't know what our music was. So um, they just called us a progressive blues band. Hmm. And you had several drummers going in and out. I mean, you had Chris Congo Campbell, whatever happened to him? Is he still oh, around or? I don't, Chris is still around somewhere. I haven't seen him for years. Yeah. Um, but I do know his brother, John, who was a probably, it was John when I met him, when I first met yeah. him. Is John now, he's in a, a Jimi Hendrix tribute band. He's the guitar player. I'm actually going to, I'm at Chris Campbell, I'm at, uh, John Campbell. I'm actually going to see him play in a small theatre near me. Oh. Uh, I think it's next month. You might yeah, so that's, <laughs> the first, that's the first time I will have met it with John for a long time. But I hope Chris is still okay. And then Atkins uh, decided to leave. Um, what was the reason for that? He just wanted to go back to blues or? No, no, no. Al, Al had a wife. Oh, okay. So and, uh, and, and a child. Out. And obviously we were doing a lot of gigs. Yeah. We did a lot of gigs. Yeah, we did a lot of gigs and we did well, you know, and um, up and down the country, up and down the country. But we were we were not getting money from the agency. Yeah, you know, because the agency used to collect money for the gigs. And then one day we drove over there and Alan Chris said, if we don't get any money out of the agency today, I'm quitting. Mm. And Chris said, yeah, I'm quitting as well. And um, which was okay because, you know, that had been coming for a while, I think, you know. Yeah. I didn't promote it, push it or rush it or do anything. But, you know, um, I had the feeling that Al might pack up because he was trying to hold down a job as well, I think. Do you know what I mean? And him and his wife and the baby were living at, at his wife's mom's house. You know, and you just want to break out of that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you think being a band was tough, you know, because 
at the time I was living in a one bedroom flat with three guys and two girls. Wow. In one bedroom. Yeah. It was like a college dorm. And one of the guys was Ian. So it was tough. Yeah. It was tough. And the other guy, Dave Cork, was the guy that used to get us gigs from a telephone kiosk, pretending he, he was an agency. Yeah. So it was tough. It was before all before electricity. But you know, I'd heard I'd heard that Rob was available. You know. Yeah, there's that uh, story that you and Ian going over his house and Yeah, yeah. But I think it was just me that went over. I can't remember Ian being there. But, you know, Rob lived with his mom and dad, you know, again, in a humble setup. And so when Alan, Chris left, you know, I'd just been told that Rob was a great singer. I didn't know. But I had no choice to go over there and, and check him out, you know. Yeah. And uh, and that was it. I mean, he wasn't able to audition there and then, he, but he did do a bit of singing. You know, and I know I claim it was to something off the radio, you know, Doris Day, but it was something like that, you know. It was <laughs> but he went upstairs and he was started singing, and I'm thinking, he's got a pretty good voice, you know. Yeah. Um, so we arranged to... Uh, for him to come in, down to the rehearsal and sing. And, uh, you know, I didn't, because he had really short hair, and I'm thinking, I don't like his short hair. <laughs> really, really, really short. Yeah. You know, I mean, short. He did but grow it a little for rock and roll. <laughs> you know, who am I to discriminate? It's just hair, you know, if you hey. grow it, indeed. You know, um, but then again, Rob was trying to keep down a job as well. I think he worked yeah. in a gents outfitters at the time, you know, so, and I'd done that as well. Mm. So I know the rules, you know, but I'm thinking, oh yeah, but he'll grow his hair if he get in the band, you know. And that was it. So then me and Rob would write together, you know, um, and that's what we did. And we did a lot of shows, an awful lot of shows. The band was great. You know, we were a four-piece, and I was happy with that. And then we couldn't get a record deal. Nobody knew what sort of music we played, but it was, it was the style of music that I could hear in my head, you know. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, was, it was the embryo of heavy metal because I'd heard heavy metal before. I'd heard people play it little bits of heavy metal here from different bands sure you know from Jimi hendrix to the kinks to the trogs you know um a a few other obscure bands i'd heard the style of music a lot more and because it wasn't there for people to hear like the working class snot kids like me Mm. we didn't have a style of music you know um that was dedicated to us so one needed to be created and so the road, the evolution to heavy metal began. From the very beginning, it started with Atkins and Judas Priest. 
But I'm not saying that there wasn't other people around the world like me. There was. Tony Iommi was one of them, I'm sure, and he was. You know, maybe Frank Marino or other people somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, maybe uh, Rudy Schenker, you know. Did Gold Roth? Maybe there, there was other people around as well. It wasn't just me. Right. You know, uh, Burke Shea from, from um, Budgie. You know, it wasn't just me, which was good. But I felt it felt like it was just me that was trying to create a music that didn't exist. Mm. And I was happy to do that because that means it's going to be unique. Yeah. But getting it accepted is another thing. So, so when, when at long last Black Sabbath came out, I'm thinking, wow, rejoice, rejoice. There is other people alive on the planet. You know, we can work together. I'm sure that we can. But what it meant was that record labels, a few of the bands got signed and that helped us get signed. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, the record company, they all turned us down, but this one small company said, we'll sign the band, but Black Sabbath have just been signed, Led Zeppelin have just been signed, Free have just been signed, and you've all got the same lineup. So uh, we'd like to suggest you have a saxophone player or a keyboard player, and I'm thinking, <laughs> now I've got to prostitute myself. You know, Now I've got to change the magic ingredients. You know. And so I had to consider it and consider it. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm absolutely, it's not going to happen. But I thought potential to have another guitar player it potentially is a good option because I thought that I had some good thoughts about it, you know, what we could do. I thought if we do it, we're not going to be like Cliff Richard and the Shadows or these other bands that have a lead player and a rhythm player. Right, you know, right. we want, you know, we want two lead players. And that was very unique. Well, you, you can imagine if the original Scorpions would have had two lead players, right. if you'd have had two Michael Schenker, if you'd have had Michael Schenker and Uli Roth in the same band, whew, you know, how great that would have been. So I set about the arduous task. Well, actually, it, it was coincidental. And the Glenn's band had just disbanded. And I knew of Glenn. Yeah. And I'd seen him play. And I knew he was tight and tidy, you know. But he was potentially more blues-orientated to me. But I was looking for a good guitar player that looked good and mm -hmm. sounded good and could play good. And that's what happened. So Glenn was recruited we had the we had we had the songs for the album but then i i invited glenn to have some input on some of those songs as well that we'd already been playing just you know I mean um to work out a few extra guitar parts and included him on some of the songwriting you know um just to really make the bond the band bond together well and that's what we did so having glenn I had this crazy notion that we, we could create heavy our harmonies. Okay, how the hell do you do that? Because when you, when you harmonize, you know, suddenly you become the Allman Brothers or the, you know, um, you know, the James Gang or something, you know, or Wishbone Ash or, you know, 
which was okay. You know, um, Brian had this idea that if we did it, we could do it in a special way. And I was interested in trying to work that out. Also, when I played solos, you know, it didn't sound so empty on stage. You know, we had a, a back, we could back each other up, you know, and and at the same time, when we when we play these heavy riffs and we put them in stereo, not just on the album, but when we play live, I knew that that would sound good. So and it did, and yeah. and the and the twin guitar attack was born. Victim of changes. There you go. <laughs> you know, I think. One album that I really love, um, you know, I think it gets a bad rap, Rockarola. And because of the sound quality, because of, I guess, Roger Bain, the producer, who oddly enough did Sabbath's albums, you know. Um, but there is some great stuff on there. And I just read this and I never knew this. And I've been a fan of Priest for long time but caviar Metz was actually a 10 minute song is that true on yeah live. yeah uh and i've got i've got some early recordings here you know that nobody's ever heard but oh god you should release those someday <laughs> with um <laughs> with songs like you know unreleased stuff as a four piece uh yeah. with, with rob singing so we're playing we're playing that stuff. We're playing Whiskey Woman, which is Victim Changes. We're yeah. playing um, Run of the Mill. We're playing all that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the re the band we did not capture the band. But the idea of making an album is to capture how the band sounds live, and we didn't do that. Yeah. But we were under. A lot of duress under a cheap budget. Yeah, it was terrible. We were sleeping in the van outside the studio. The band. We would wake up in the van in the morning, mm. go into the studio, studio, clean our teeth, wash our hands and face, and start recording. Wow. So, do you really? Did we really expect it to sound great? Not really, but there. So I'm doing all of these improvised solos, half asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, then you found your. Then, you started to really find your identity at Sad Wings of Destiny. I mean, that's where it really. Then you started becoming the Judas Priest that people started to know and love, and um, I. You know, personally, my favorite, the 70s albums are gold. I mean, I, I just think there's so many great things in there. And, of course, in the 70s is the song you're best known for, Sinner, right? Off of Sin After Sin, which is, I don't know if you guys didn't realize this or uh, Roger Glover. That was so ahead of its time, that album. Yeah, but it's still... Still didn't capture the band, you know. Right. I, I don't think we really captured the essence of the band, probably of, of the band life, yeah. Probably, probably until British Steel, yeah. I think that's reminiscent to, to how we sounded live at the time, you know. Whereas the other, the other albums, 
they sounded um there was complexity bit, progressing uh, yeah, a bit restricted you know I, I almost as though i don't know almost as though at times you could sense the nervousness because the red recording light came on or something oh, you know as well as when you're playing live in front of a studio you go into a completely different mindset right. become an animal <laughs> except the, become... the song sinner there was just genius how you just let go and then live it became the live song and i don't know if that was a lot of your hendrix influence yeah electricity yeah. um but it was just like uh, you know it just everything aligned yeah oh you, know, you had it as a great song right there when you first i, I think that um a, a very important song really isn't it you know i mean it is um but you know and and that's why you know, I've just I've just taken pieces of my life, really, consciously or subconsciously, and just done a new record. Because at times, you know, in Judas Priest, we moved away from the priest, you know, and yeah. that was I was never that never sat comfortably with me, you know. I wanted to, you know, when I hear sermons of the synod, it's all priest, you know. Yeah, I was you know, going to say that. And and this is, you know, it never goes away. And there's going to be lots more of that to come. There's, there's going to be lots more of that, you know. And um, but but obviously, when you're working with partners in a band, and you're writing and you're playing and you're doing all of this stuff, you have to be compassionate to what everyone else wants and and how they hear things, you know. Um, like I say on this album. Again, I had the I had the, the luxury of, of stepping back into the sixties and the late sixties and the early seventies where being able to create to have, you know, um the platform and you know the the artist canvas to be able to put on there what you see or in the, in our case what what I hear. You, you know, mm -hmm. and also create visuals to go with it, you know, so I like that. And, and I do feel as though this new lease of life has come about, because now I want to make amends for everything, you know, and turn the clock back and kind of start again in a way, and go through the journey, traverse the evolution of metal again. Yeah. But but in the way that I see and hear it. The sermons of the sinner. Mm -hmm. Continuing from the song, The Sinner. <laughs> and that's what I like about this new album of yours is the riffage. The riffs are just, those are what classic priest riffs should sound like, right? Right. Absolutely. Aggressive. Aggressive yet progressive, and yeah. you know, it just. <laughs> See, I'm so I'm so excited about the project. I mean, because I've moved on now to the next album, so I'm, yeah. I'm hearing a lot of that as well. Yeah. So you know, because I've I've kind of done this now, so I wanna I wanna work on the next 
on the next thing, you know. But I do, I, I'm, I'm, we're so, we want, so want to get out there and play these songs live, you know. So that's going to be great. They are live songs. They, they, they are, are live songs. Yeah. It was totally in my mind doing the whole thing. I don't want to do one of these albums where two or three of the songs will be good live songs, the rest now, they never see the light of day. All of these songs, they're geared up for playing live. You know, there's a place in the set for all of them. Now, Ripper Owen seemed like the obvious choice, right? I mean, when you first thought about coming back and doing this, was he the first that you thought of? I mean, he he's a pretty obvious choice. Yeah. Yeah, there's not many people in the world, you know, you've got Rob, you've got Ripper, you've got Ralph Shapers, you know, there's not too many other vocalists around that can actually do this. Is the re- It's tough, you know, I mean, they're pretty unique, these guys, aren't they? It takes a lot, right, it is, it takes a lot of, uh, uh, I was going to say abuse on your vocal cords, but yeah, they're it takes so a lot strong. of... Yeah. They're so strong, you know, because Rob, Rob and Ripper, you know, when we used to tour live, those guys never blew shows out. So, you know, I mean, to do what they do in the way that they do it, you know, and be so strong, you'd think it'd be the opposite. You'd think they would only be able to do it, you know, once or twice or three times a week, but they can go out there and play. Yeah. You know, they're so strong especially live to gear yeah. up for that, you know, but I know a lot of priest fans are glad you're back because, you know, off the golf course and back on stage, you know, when you first said you were retiring, <laughs> a lot of people are bummed. Yeah. But you see, that was a myth. Oh, that's complete missing information. And this is why I'm so unhappy with the rest of the guys in the band, because they told you, and all of the fans, something that's complete misinformation. Mm. But they only told you that because they don't want to get into the detail. Mm. Because in December 2010, I decided not to do the farewell tour. Right. The tour that we were all said we were going to retire. We were going to retire the band. It was going to be the end of the band. And so we're being asked mm. to put together press releases, which we did, and I have, about the end of the band mm. and all of us retiring Judas Priest. When we were going to do a farewell tour and we're being, we were being asked by the management to think of a name for the end of the band, the farewell tour. And it was going to be called the Epitaph tour which i wasn't particularly keen on um but God, i great. remember that now it seems like it was clear. we were it was going to be the end of the band right so patrick what was it that i was gonna not do that everybody else was gonna do there was only one thing that i was not gonna do ironically retire it, it was do the farewell tour. Yeah, yeah. Which was the retirement tour. And I said, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I didn't know they were going to carry on for another 10 years. I thought they were going to do the retirement tour, which I didn't do. Right. 
it seems like ages ago too. I forgot about that whole hoopla. You know, when bands say they're going to retire, I usually ignore it because look, I mean, the who said they were going to retire in 1980, right? They were on their, they were on their farewell tour. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it gets said all the time. Yeah. But, and so what I'm saying is even if I did retire, yeah, like they told everybody, Right. To look after my golf course that had been open for seven years. Yeah, already. And there was a professional management company there, an American company, big company called Troon. Troon are an international, global golf management company. They were brought in to manage the golf course. Mm. And it had already been open. I was doing world tours yeah. while the golf course was up and running. I didn't need to do any of that, but it, it was, this is why I'm disgruntled about the whole thing, because it made me look like a deserter. Right. It made Never. me look like a jump ship and deserted the fans. Right. Oh, Kenzie, he's retiring to look after his golf course. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, no, I will do this tour, this farewell tour, but things have got to change. People can't get pissed on stage. You know, people have got to give 101% if I'm going to do this. You know, I'm not going to do an EP like you're telling me to do because I'm not going to end my career on an EP. I'm not an EP art. All of these things mm -hmm. that I was saying, I need to have a voice and you, everybody needs to listen to KK. If we're going to end this, it needs to be done in the way I think it should be done. Right. But no, they weren't having it. So I went, right, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I for uh, one, I never thought of you being a deserter. I just missed you being on stage. That's what it came down to. <laughs> that's, that's basically what it came down to. But what the world doesn't know as well, in April 2011, I changed my mind. Because people were telling me, KK, you were there right. at the beginning. You right. started it. You should finish it. And so I, called, I was speaking to Ian. I called Ian up. And I was talking to him about it. And I told him I should do the tour, really. You know, and I asked him, can you send me the set list over? Because that was always a bone of contention. He sent the set list over. And the very next day, they, they released the press release that I'd retired. Because after he sent the set list over, I called him back and said, Ian, it's really good. It's exactly what I was suggesting back in December. Mm -hmm. This should be a chronological, it should be a taster of the successful songs from each album. Let's take people on, on, this, on this lovely journey, you know, um, chronological journey through the set list. And that's what the set list was. So he sent me it over. So instead of me getting a phone call the next day thinking, okay, Ken, uh, we hear that you, you, you consider, you're thinking about doing the tour. I didn't get that. They released the press release. All new information, isn't it? Yes. To you. To you. <laughs> yes. Well. So, so that's when I got really angry and sent in my second letter that same day. And I gave the guys my real reasons for not doing that final tour. The first letter I sent in was a retirement letter saying, I'm not doing the tour. 
I'm out now. But I didn't tell them, give them the real reasons. But on the second letter, I did. You elaborated, right? I elaborated. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, the sour grapes dug their heels in, sour grapes, sour grapes, sour grapes. If I had retired, why shouldn't I be allowed to step back out of retirement? Like we said before, mm -hmm. bands always come out of retirement. Right. Guys always leave bands and rejoin. Bands self-combust, Guns and Roses or whatever, and come back together. All the time. It's, it's par for the course. Yeah. So when I sat there expecting to step back in the role when there was a place for me, because they obviously wanted to go forward with Richie, who they'd found and become friends with. Mm -hmm. so, so when there was an opportunity when Glenn retired and I didn't get the call. Well, the, the good news is, is that you got some great music on the table um, with this new album. Yeah, I, 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 yeah I, I'm just saying I should have elaborated more in my book. I should have gone more in detail, into detail about but that's not why I wrote the book. Right. You know, I wrote the book for a lot of different reasons, you know, and didn't think it was that, you know, but it's important. These details are really important. You know, I feel as though I was ousted out of the band. No such thing as retirement. Right. You know, and yeah. after 40 years, and I, I mean, if you take the guys individually, mate, obviously, I know this is going into detail, but Rob left the band for 14 years and I was instrumental in getting him back. Yeah. And Glenn left. Back. Glenn, Glenn left for six years to do two solo records with Cozy and John. Mm. He was allowed to do that. No, pro no problem. That's what you want to do artistically. Can't stop you. And Ian, bless him, we went to kindergarten together, me and Ian. But he was never a writer in the band. He, he comes along with his bass guitar and great, and he's done a great job. But without the songs, there is no band. Mm-hmm. I provided the songs all of those years, which was a livelihood for Ian. And now he's saying he's voting me not back in the band, not to come back in the band. Can you see the irony and yes, why I'm angry sure. about it all? Three, the three guys, and I was the loyal guy. I, I was the guy that never wanted to play with other people because my focus only was Judas Priest. For all the reasons and the history I've told you. And that's why I'm a priest now, because I'm not going to give my life, my life's legacy and my creation up. You know, and that's why I decided to carry on and call this KK's Priest and not the Flying Tornadoes or the Pink Willies or something else obscure, because my legacy, my heritage, and this whole thing. I'm not going to say it belongs to me, but it does. A massive, massive part of this is in my veins. Nobody else's. Nobody else's. Great players can step on the stage and play Judas Priest music, and they will forevermore when we're all dead, including Rob. And they'll do a great job of it, and I'm sure that they'll make good money doing it. It's easy to roll the wheel, Patrick, but to invent the wheels a different ball game. 
Well, this is why I wanted to talk to you because you're the fundamental piece that started it all. And if you're going to talk about 50 years of priest, you have to talk to KK Downing. Yep. You have to, yeah, you absolutely do. Because heavy metal didn't exist when I started this, right. where I could hear it. I mean, the song Hellfire Thunderbolt, it, it's, it's fact, but not really. More like to be fiction, but that has a whole meaning as well. album is deeper than what it is on the surface Patrick you know Hellfire Thunderbolt is about I mean you don't recognize it but I'm thinking to myself why I was born in 1951 and I think this is a great metal interest and suddenly I'm there anybody who's read my book you will I had a bad start in life and and I know there's millions like me you know, but how did I manage to achieve what I've achieved? How, how, and why was it made recognized this music that didn't exist? How come I could hear it? You know, so, and then I realized, because I thought it was just me back then, but then, as I've said before, there's other people around the world Mm-hmm. They had it too. They could hear it too. Other selected people. Now, the thing is, I'm thinking, how and why did it happen around about that time? You know, the evolution of man's been around for millions of years. You know, why didn't it happen in the 1800s? Or why didn't it happen in the future? Why now? You know, and Hellfire Thunderbolt, was it, was it, a million years ago, a thousand years ago, 500 years, was this massive electric storm? Was it this massive? Did it rain down on the planet, on human beings? You know, were we infused with this metal from the gods? You know, this is the song Hellfire Thunderbolt. It's all about metal. You know, were we as humans in loincloths or as embryos infused with metal into our beings and brains and did it lie dormant for all of these years until around about 1964 when KK was there at school pulling his hair out thinking I hate all of this pop music I have to listen to when I go home my sisters are playing I, I hate this I hate that there's no you know and I, I love this blues music. I'm listening to Sonny Terry, Browning McGee, Howling Wolf, you know, and um, and I'm listening to John Mayall's Blues Breakers, and I love it, and it's great, but it's still not for me. Where's the music for me? Yeah. And other people like me. And I met other people, and we would get together in fours and fives, and we... And I knew we were, me and my friends, 
and we actually became musicians, most of us. Martin Phillips, he didn't go on to play the drums. I think he's passed away now. But we would be in our trench coats with our, with our few albums and, and go and play them, yeah. you know. But, and and the, the songs were there. They were great. We loved them. Bron knew that we wanted more because Martin did play on them. We would, you know, this thing, you know, the, because we were white working class kids, the blues were... The blues music evolved because it, it did a wonderful thing for a lot of people that were oppressed in another world to us, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that was, was great, you know, and, 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 and the white musicians, you know, Eric Clapton, and you name them, you know, Jeff Hicks, all the people that were, were around, the great players, Jimmy Page, they adopted it and, and they transformed it into progressive blues, mm -hmm. which was wonderful. And we had all these wonderful progressive blues bands, you know, that took the blues music, blues songs, but elaborated on them. And then you, evolved, that, you, you helped know, make the music that, evolve. That eventually turned into kind of rock, blues rock, you know, with Led Zeppelin yeah. and stuff like that. But it still wasn't what I wanted mm -hmm. to hear. But when the great Jimi Hendrix came along, and I in 1967 when I first saw him, and I saw him play Purple Haze and, and Foxy La Foxy Lady, this is heavy metal to yes. me. Yes. The these riff orientated songs are not blues songs. This has got so much power and heaviness. You know, where is it coming from? Yeah. He's playing it on the same guitar as he's playing Red House, which is a beautiful blues song. Right. But when he plays, the, it's transformed. It's part it's of the almost like It's almost like he's detuned his guitar, you know, yeah. uh, five or six octaves. <laughs> Where is the heaviness? And it's the emotions, it's the, the, the sentiments, the feelings, you know. And... Um, and it's something was something really quite magical, but there was there was remnants of other heavy metal here and there. Yeah, I'll tell the story about you really got me by the Kinks in 1965. In 1965, I heard that song, and I thought to myself, "Fuck, why is it I like this song? This is a pop band; they're in the charts all the time. Why do I like this song?" And it was one of the few songs that I like. I, and I played it and played it and played it. There's something about it that I really like. And it because it's a riff-orientated song. And when Van Halen played it, when I saw them supporting Black Sabbath in 1978 in Birmingham, my hometown, I know, I, know, I said to myself, now I know why I like this song in 1965. <laughs> because there's elements of metal in it. Yes. Well, one last question. When can we expect you in the U.S., KK's Priest? As soon as you send us a ticket, we'll be on the boat. We'll be over there. <laughs> we'll be on the boat with our, with our amplifiers and our guitars. We're ready to go, mate. Just I, want to see a, I want to see a guest spot from Les Binks as well. <laughs> Les, is de Les is definitely going to be on the stage with us. He's going to play a few songs. He couldn't play extensively for six or right. seven hours each day but les can play you know i mean play, 
you know, he can, he's definitely going to play some songs with us. If he did a you little know, cider, I would be pleased. <laughs> yeah, like I say, you know, Leslie's got this wonderful ability to be able to play the drums and he doesn't have to crash it. It just sounds uh, great, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so, but yeah, so if you ever, ever want to talk metal and get it from the horse's mouth. Well, I'm glad I, it, it's glad a, of this it's interview. A, Thank you. It's, it's, it's been a lifetime, you know, and so many times, you know. Well, thank you as a, as a fan. I say thank you. There's plenty more to come. I know it's there just, is. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning of the way that it should always be. Yeah. And I'm here to encourage young other musicians to hopefully listen to this record and think, you know what? This fucking music's never going to die. You know, every time I think it's going to die, somebody like KK pops out and makes a record like this. And so it's, it's proof that these songs that could have appeared in the 70s or the 80s or at any point in my career, yes. you know, you can still create unique versions of this wonderful music that we know and love so well. I think if... I think if Jimi Hendrix were still alive and heard you play, he'd be very pleased that you were a student of, of his. Well, you know, he was the most influential person. Perhaps he didn't know it, but there is no doubt in my mind if any one person in the world is responsible for heavy metal other than me, I recognized it. But the, the other people probably didn't. They, they were just doing it consciously or subconsciously, or just it just felt or sounded good. Uh, but uh, Jimi Hendrix, there was more metal in that one artist for the time, if you roll back the clock, than any other artist on the planet at the time. He was part of the Hellfire Thunderbolts. He was. Yeah. He, he was. And so that's that's a really cool story. I think it really is because... I really feel as though, you know, it, it lay there dormant because it, something miraculous happened in the 60s to bring about the, the, this new style of music. The embryo was there. It was, you know, and it was given birth, you know, in a short space of time and went from strength to strength to strength. By the time we got to the mid-80s, we had Doc and Van Halen, Judas Priest, <laughs> I, I made the Saxon, Doro. We had all of this. Yes. You know. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. Okay, mate. Yes. Have a you good day, man. Care, okay, take care. Bye. Okay, bye now. KK, thank you for talking to Goldmine. You can also read a portion of this interview on goldminemag.com and read other exclusive content there. You can also pick up KK's, KK's Priest's new album at shop.goldminemag.com. That's our store. We have unique vinyl and collectibles. And you could go to cygnusradio.com and listen to Goldmine Radio. And that's on every Sunday at 7 p.m., Eastern Time. Okay, that's all for now. This is Pat Prince signing off. We'll see you next time on the Goldmine Podcast.
Want to look and feel better together? Team up and lose weight with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. Partners lose more weight doing it together, up to 20% more weight than doing it on their own. Get fully prepared breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks delivered right to your door. Delicious foods that are ready in minutes. Now featuring new meals for two. Double portion meals served up in one package and designed for weight loss. Quick to prepare and ready to share. Get Nutrisystem's Partner Plan and lose weight together. Now with with hearty inspirations dinners that control hunger for up to five hours. Exactly what you both need to feel full, satisfied, and energized as the weight comes off. Stop wasting money on diets that don't work and lose weight with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. Get started for as low as $10 a day. Go to Nutrisystem.com meals right now and get a deal for two. Just go to Nutrisystem.com meals. Expect to lose an average one to two pounds a week. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details.